We're continuing with our series in Hebrews 6, and before we do that, let's pray together, because this is quite a hefty text, and I do think we really do need God's understanding and wisdom to open this up well. Lord, we thank you that you are with us this morning. Thank you for, for your word, and the power and the, and the gems and the, and the gold that is in it, that speaks to us and changes our lives. We thank you for that. We pray, Lord, by virtue of your Holy Spirit that indwells us and works within us, that you will bring understanding, that you would help us to open this up in a, in a way that would make it possible for us to do life better together with you. Help us, Lord, to understand and to apply, to make it part of us. And thank you, in the name of Jesus. Amen. When we look at a specific piece of scripture or passage of scripture like this one, the idea really is to break it open. Uh, that's how you deal with the word and with scripture, and then to let it speak to us in our context for today. Uh, in theology, we call that hermeneutics. Forget about the word. It's really about, okay, let's break it open. What is it saying to us today? What does it mean for us today? It's literally a little bit like cracking open a nut, and I found a picture that more or less I think, depicts how we are supposed to go about cracking open the nut in Hebrews 6. And it's a little bit like this. It is quite a, <laughs> it's quite a nut to crack open. But let's uh, give it our best go and see how it goes. I think in many ways Hebrews 6 is really a tough nut to crack. But oh, the joy of discovering what is hidden inside. There's something beautiful. When it does open up, it just, it's incredible. I think it's one of the most difficult passages in the Word of God. It's generally accepted in theology that Romans is the most difficult book in the Bible because it is so incredibly analytical. It's like building bricks in a wall and you build one brick on top of the other. That's how Romans work. Hebrews is considered to be the second most difficult, not Revelation. Revelation is actually not hugely difficult, though there's many pieces missing in our understanding still. Very interesting stuff. Hebrews, one of the most difficult ones to really get your head into, and Hebrews 6, I think specifically, is quite hefty. So opening up a passage of Scripture starts by reading it. So let's read it, and I will put it on the screen for you, and you can also follow in your version. I am reading it from the Amplified Version, because in my experience, uh, if you don't want to go as far as going into the Greek or the Hebrew, then there is nothing better than the Amplified Bible, to open up a text. So let's have a look at it. Therefore, let us get past the elementary stage in the teachings about the Christ, advancing on to maturity and perfection and spiritual completeness. Doing this without laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of teachings about washings, ritual purifications, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and internal, eternal judgment. There are six things there. Take note of those six things. These are all important matters in which you should have been proficient long ago. And we will do this. That is, we will proceed to maturity if God permits. For it is impossible to restore to repentance those who have once been enlightened spiritually and who have tasted and consciously experienced the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted and consciously experienced the good word of God and the powers of the age or the world to come, 
and then have fallen away, it is impossible to bring them back again to repentance, since they again nail the Son of God on the cross. For as far as they are concerned, they are treating the death of Christ as if they were not saved by it. And they are holding him up again for public disgrace. For soil that drinks the rain which often falls on it and produces crops useful to those for whose benefit it is cultivated. Note the word benefit there. Receives a blessing. Note the word blessing. Benefit and blessing. But if it persistently produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burnt. But, beloved, but, it's a stronger word than just but in the Greek. It's an imperative but. But definitely not so with you. That's basically what it says. Beloved, even though we speak to you in this way, we are convinced of better things concerning you and of things that accompany salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown for His name in ministering to the needs of the saints, God's people as you do. And we desire for each one of you to show the same diligence, diligence, effort, consistently applied, diligence all the way through so as to realize and enjoy the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you will not be spiritually sluggish, but will instead be imitators of those who through faith lean on God with absolute trust and confidence in Him and in His power. And by patient endurance, even when you are suffering, you are now inheriting the promises. There's 19 verses here, so let's just work through them slowly but surely. For when God made the promise to Abraham, he swore an oath by himself, since he had no one greater by whom to swear. Now this comes out of Jewish culture. They understand what this means. We don't fully get it. Basically, it's how you swear an oath, uh, a binding promise. Saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. So God swore this oath. He swore to do this. It's his promise. And then verse 15, and so having patiently waited, he realized the promise in the miraculous birth of Isaac as a pledge of what was to come from God, as a forerunner, really, of Jesus to come. Indeed, men swear an oath by one greater than themselves, and with them, in all disputes, the oath serves as confirmation of what has been said, and it is an end of the dispute. There's no more questions around this, there's no dispute about it, because if an oath of this kind of nature is sworn, and if we know the one who swears it, God... There's no dispute about whether it's going to happen or not. It's, it's secure. In the same way God, in His desire to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable nature of His purpose, intervened and guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, His promise and His oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, He who have fled to Him for refuge would have strong encouragement and indwelling strength to hold tightly to the hope set before us. Hope is there. God promised it. Be strongly encouraged and be strengthened to go for it. That's what it says. And then the last little bit here. In the same way, well, almost there. It's 20 verses, not 19. Uh, where are we? 17. In the same way, we've read that. And then this hope, this confident assurance we have is an anchor of the soul 
It cannot slip and it cannot break down under whatever pressure bears upon it. A safe and a steadfast hope that enters within the veil of the heavenly temple. You can see the language comes out of Jewish culture all the time. That most holy place in which the very presence of God dwells. Where Jesus has entered in advance as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. That's how you say it in Hebrew. I won't go into Melchizedek today too much. That's about two other sermons, and I think people coming next week is going to tackle that by the grace of God. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. Good luck with that one. It's a good one, though. So now that we read through the passage, let's try to give a theme to all of this. And so I want to suggest the theme, and I think it's this. Christians, for goodness sake, grow to spiritual maturity. My goodness. That's a sense here. That's what the writer of Hebrews is on about. For goodness sake. If I was to expand it a little bit further, I would add this. Christians, for goodness sake, grow to spiritual maturity so that you can be a blessing to God, yourself and others in this world. And so that you can eventually enter into the blessing of God's eternal rest. That's what he's on about. That's the theme of, of this thing, the bottom line. That's really it. But that's not all it is. It's a little bit more than justice. So now, against the background of what we've just read and this theme that you can see there, let's work to open up this passage so that we can understand it a bit better. And so we'll do this in two rounds. So first round and a second round of understanding. We're really going to work with the text a little bit today. So it's a bit like a Bible study. It's not really a preach or a sermon in the normal way because you really want to get into this text to break it open. And so let's do it in a slightly different way. Where you see pink, those are my additions to the text as part of an explanation. And so we're just going to read through it a little bit again and make some comments. So we won't do it with all the verses, uh, but at the beginning there's quite a few that we have to look at, and then a little bit later on. Now have a look at this, towards understanding Hebrews 6, round number 1. I hope it's not too small, but let's try and see how far we get. Therefore, let us get past the elementary stage in the teachings about the Christ. This is past Christian childhood and past discussions that keep us bogged down at the starting point of being Christian. It's almost like the writer of Hebrews is saying, man, you guys, you came out of Judaism. You had all these religious practices that were part of your previous life, and then you came to Christ. But now you're still undecided. It's as if you haven't made up your minds. You're not sure whether you should go back to those other religious practices that you previously lived according to. And that's so strongly part of your culture anyway as Jews. You know, it, it's as if these things keep pulling you back. But I've taught you about Christ. And Jesus is greater. So man, make up your minds, Christians. Do you want to go back to that stuff or do you want to press in? And forward into more of Christ. That's where he starts. Don't let yourself be bogged down by this indecisiveness about whether you want to go back or whether you want to push forward in Christ, whether you want to grow into Christian spiritual maturity. 
Advancing onto maturity and perfection and spiritual completeness. This is about Christ-likeness. For Christ is greater than your previous beliefs, religious practices, examples, ways of being saved. I mean, Christ is the better example. Christ is better than, than animal sacrifice as an atonement for sin. That does it. That's not sufficient. That's not complete. Christ is better than that. So make up your mind. You want to go back to that? In our context, what is it that we held on to to fill the void in our soul before we met Christ. And it's almost like if the writer of Hebrews were writing to us, he would say, man, make up your mind. Do you want to pursue the pleasures of the world or success or whatever else is going to fill the void in your soul rather than Christ? Especially now that you're experiencing a bit of persecution and it's a little bit difficult and it's not easily accepted everywhere. You're chased out of town when you speak about Christ. You know, you cannot buy at the shop because... Um, People don't want to sell to Christians. They consider us a sect. You want to go back to this previous way of life? There's no way this one compares to that, but you're going to have to make up your mind. That's what he's saying. Doing this without laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards Christ. Now, some Bible studies would use this list of six things and say, these really are the foundational concepts of the Christian faith. So let's look at these things again. Um, where are we? Without laying again a foundation of repentance. Because this is only the starting point of your faith journey. And you should not become bogged down. Let's look at that list of six things again. Without laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith towards God, of teachings about washings, the word that is used there in Greek is baptismos. It's not the same word that is used for baptism, though it is often translated as baptism. Baptismos means ritual purification, which was part of the Jewish culture, part of their religious practices. So it's not the same as being baptized here. Okay, washing, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and internal judgment. These things. If you look at that list of six things, Let's ask ourselves a really hard question. How many of those things are distinctly Christian? If you really look at it very hard, you will find that all six of those concepts are also in some way, shape, or form part of Judaism. It's part of what the Jews came out of, those doctrines. When we come to Christ, and in Christ we give new meaning to these doctrines, and we see them in a different way. But it's not as if they were not known, uh, or as if they did not know about these things. They knew them. These are all important matters in which you should have been proficient long ago. I mean, it's part of our culture, part of your, what you get in school, Beth Midrash, Beth Sefer. You, you learn these things in primary and secondary school. Learn about these things. So that's not what it is. So let's just go back in text a little bit. This word perfection, really, the, the word there is, uh, is connected to the word telos, or teleological, is a word that we use in theology, which means to achieve a goal, maturity, pursue maturity, achieve a goal. That's that whole concept of perfection. Then when he talks about this thing about 
elementary foundational principles or elementary principles that it has the idea of the ABCs. These are the ABCs of the faith. It's just basics. Basic building blocks. But they are just that. They are foundations on which other things have to build. If they are just foundations and you stay at the foundations, no house will be built. And that's not good enough. Not laying again this thing about the foundations. Don't lay the foundations again. Uh, so, so the question is, what is distinctively Christian about this list of six things? What are, where is the specific motion of Jesus or salvation by grace alone? In none of those things really is he directly there. Can you believe or practice these things and still not be a follower of Jesus? So I want to read you what, what one commentator says, and it's quite powerful. He says this. When we consider these basics one by one, these things, these six things, it's remarkable how little in the list is distinctively Christian. For practically every item could have its place in fairly orthodox Jewish community. In other words, you will find all six these things in basic Judaism as part of their foundational teachings. In Christ. It's expanded, it's amplified, it gets new meaning. But you'll find it in Judaism. Each of these things then, indeed, acquires a new significance in a Christian context. But the impression we get is that existing Jewish beliefs and practices were used as a foundation on which to build the Christian faith. Wow, now it starts to open up. So basically, the writer of Hebrews says, man, wait a minute, you guys. You're still undecided about whether you can use your previous practices as your basis and now just try to build some Christian stuff on top of that. It's not good enough. Jesus is your new foundation. Get away from this old stuff. It's not a solid foundation. It's not going to do it. You try to build a house on that, you know what house you're going to get? A house that crumbles. <laughs> That's why Jesus is greater. Sorry if I become excited. <laughs> I cannot help myself. God talks about this thing. Well, look at verse 3. And we will do this, that is, proceed to maturity if God permits. Now, it's not as if God says, okay, okay I know you want to grow, but I'm not sure I want to permit this. <laughs> that's, that's not how God works with us. What this means is if God permits for even, you know, we, we cannot do things if God does not give us strength. I mean, Philippians 2.13, we know this verse, talks about God is the one who works in us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. So we know, we know this. So it's, that, it's permit in that sense. It's really saying if God permits... When we get the strength from God to do so, you know, we cannot grow to spiritual maturity if we don't do it with God, because God has, has to strengthen us and empower us and help us to grow. That's really it. It's, you know, it's not as if God doesn't want to. He wants to. This is just a recognition of our dependence on God in order to grow. We cannot grow without Him. Let's go on. We're not going to do it with all verses, but there's quite a bit at the beginning. This is where the, the proverbial popo hits the fan, I think, right here. For it is impossible to restore to repentance those who have once been enlightened spiritually, in other words, who have gained knowledge of the truth about Jesus. They've seen the revelation. 
and who have tasted and consciously experienced the heavenly gift. What is this heavenly gift? It's salvation in Christ. Christ given by the Father and revealed by the enlightened word preached and written as conferring peace and the remission of sin, etc., etc. It's really about salvation in Christ. It's the gift of Jesus, our salvation. And then I've shared in the Holy Spirit, experiencing the working of the Spirit. So this is nothing weak. This is the, they've, they've tasted it all. Remember Paul talks in Romans 8 9 about this thing. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot say that you're a believer, a Christian, if the, if the Holy Spirit does not dwell inside of us. I mean, when you come to Christ, when you taste salvation, when salvation happens, the Holy Spirit indwells. Now, they've even gone to that extent. That's quite profound. And I've tasted and consciously experienced the good word of God. That's the Old Testament promise of Canaan to Israel, typified. The, the good word of God's promise of the heavenly rest that he talks about in Hebrews 4. So it refers back to that passage. So really, it's, it's the good word of God's promises, which in our case refers to the whole Bible. Now, we've seen, we've tasted of everything God promised us. We've become convinced of this. Knowing now who God is, we are also convinced that He will outwork His promises. Because He's faithful. I mean, that's the latter part of this text. It's impossible. Oh, where are we? Whew, man. And then I've fallen away. There's a distinction here between falling into sin or fallen away. I'll come back to that. Made an informed choice to choose not to live according to what they came to understand and experience. Really, you guys, you're wavering. Back to the old stuff that's comfortable. Judaism, it's part of our culture. We learned these things from this knee-high age or this new thing in Christ. What is it? What is it? You're going to have to make an informed choice. You've tasted it all. There's nothing more I can reveal to you or show to you or help you experience about these things of Christ because you've actually now tasted it all and you're in the best possible position to make up your minds and to make an informed choice. Now, should it be that you turn your back on Jesus and say, look, I'm not sure that this is going to be good enough to save me. I'm not sure this is the way. It's a little bit heavy and, and difficult. There's persecution along. You know, I'm not so sure about that one. And you turn back to the old one. You know, I don't know what else I can do to convince you. There's no way I can convince you any more than through what you've already experienced and what you already know about Jesus. How much more conviction do you need? There is no more conviction. All that remained is your informed choice. Either way. It's a difficult passage to, be, uh, to understand, but I think it's best understood if you go back to the beginning of Hebrews 6. So he says, the writer says that, that if, the, if the people he writes to retreat back into Judaism, all their religious repentance will do them no good. It's, it's as if he says, retreating from Christianity into the safe zone of their previous customs and religious practices and culture and all these things 
is to forsake Jesus. If you, if you retreat away from Christ and you go back into that stuff, it's as if you forsake Jesus. You can see the movement here. You move away from. He says this is especially true for ancient Christians from Jewish background. I mean, they, they had a strong Jewish background. For them, their religious customs... If they decided to go back to this, it meant that they took up again animal sacrifices for the atonement of sins. And they're basically saying, I don't believe that the sacrifice of Jesus was good enough to save me. I believe. I need a bit more. I need to sacrifice a few animals again. So I grew up to learn that that's the way. Now I've learned there's a better way, but man, I'm not so convinced of this. If they fall away, let's talk about that part of it. Falling away is more than just falling into sin. It's actually departing from Jesus himself. We know that Proverbs 24 verse 16 says, If the righteous man falls seven times... God helps him up. Yeah. That, that talks about falling. This is a bit more. Uh, it, it's the difference between Peter and Judas in the Bible. And Peter fell perhaps seven times or even more. I don't know. Seven is just a full number in the Bible. Judas fell away. Judas was one of the disciples. He tasted it all. He saw it. He saw the revelation. He heard everything that everybody else did. He was in the perfect position to make the informed choice, and he chose against. Peter versus Judas. So the message here to these Christians who felt like giving up because, man, it's a bit hard. In my town, I can no longer buy groceries because I consider, I'm, I'm naming myself as a Christian. And in this town, there's now been a ban placed on selling groceries to Christians because we are considered a sect. And we, you know, this shop, 7-Eleven, only sells to Judaism believers or followers. So it's a bit hard. I'm persecuted for what I believe. They felt like giving up. And it's in this context that the writer of Hebrews writes, Man, man, you guys, I'm becoming exasperated. I'm really becoming a little bit fed up with this now. You, even though it's a little bit hard, you need to, you need to make up your mind. <laughs> You're starting to get the sense of it. If you don't continue on with Jesus, don't suppose you will find salvation by just going on with ideas and the experience that Christianity and Judaism share, those six things. Don't think the other way, the old way is good enough to save you. It's not. If you aren't saved in Jesus, you aren't saved at all. That's what he's saying. There's no salvation in a safe common ground between Judaism and Christianity that is, that is a safe place for you. Don't try to find the safe place here. You know, you either drift away back into the old stuff or you grow towards greater Christ-likeness and spiritual maturity. 
There's no middle ground. You cannot tread water because what happens in spirituality, in, in, in the Christian faith, if you tread water, you become tired. Uh, later on, he talks about spiritually sluggish. Tired. Nobody can tread water indefinitely. You will drown somewhere along the line because you become too tired to continue doing it. If someone falls away, we must understand why he or she cannot repent. It's, it's because they don't want to. This is important. It's not as if God prohibits their repentance. Hear this clearly. It's not as if God says, it's, uh, you know, I'm not willing to allow it. I mean, repentance is a work from God anyway, that works, God works in us. Romans 2, 4 talks about this. The desire to repent is evidence that God is at work in our lives anyway. The idea here is more this. It's, it's, it is not that if you fall away, you can't ever come back to Jesus. That's not exactly what this means. Instead, the idea is if you turn your back on Jesus... Don't expect to find salvation anywhere else. Especially in the practice of religious things that you previously did. If you turn your back on Jesus, don't expect to find salvation anywhere else. And if you decided to go for this, I mean, obviously you made your informed choice and how do I then convince you again about this? This has already happened. You've already tasted it all. If you now choose against it, after having tasted it all, experience the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, even the miracles, the power of God. Like Judas. Let's skip over the next part, except for that. But beloved, even though verse 9 even though we speak to you in this way as a warning to grow and not drift away or become bogged down at the starting point of the journey of Christian maturity. That's just a further bit of explanation. Let's go on to the next slide. And we desire for each one of you to show the same diligence, persistent effort to grow. Persistent effort to grow. All the way through so as to realize and enjoy the full assurance of hope, of eternal rest, which you mentioned before. Until the end, so that you will not be spiritually sluggish. We refer to that like babies or like people who are tired because they are bogged down at the starting point. Almost tired as if they were treading water. See this notion of becoming sluggish. Go on. Towards the end. But will instead be imitators of those through faith and so on and so on. And by patient endurance are inheriting the promises. If you keep growing, the results are bound to show and bless you and those around you. You know, God's promises grow in your life, becomes actualized in your life. Goes on, nothing there. And then this one in 17 and following. Let's read from verse 18. So by this, it's all about the promises. And they serve as encouragement and strength from God to keep us growing towards spiritual maturity. We've talked about this one before. So let's finish it off with this one and say this. Uh, look at the end there. Not talking about Melchizedek too much, but let's have a look at this. 
Jesus being a high priest opening up and showing the best way to salvation and a life of blessing. For self, others, everybody involved. That's why Jesus is greater. He is the better way. He is actually the only way. This is it. This is just the first round, so let's open it up a little bit more deeply in, in a few places. Not too many additions, but get your head around this first, because it's almost like you have to you know, open it up like a bit of an, a nut or an onion, even, if you want to use that. So let's go into an even deeper, even deeper understanding. I think the basic concept of Hebrews 6 is around, it's, it's brilliantly summarized in the booklet that Ben gave us right at the beginning of the series, and it's been opening up all throughout with all these sermons, but have a look at this. This is the basic contention of Hebrews. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Therefore, not whatever that word is, believe in Him and grow to become ever more like Him in how you live, in what you do. And in who you are. In other words, grow to spiritual maturity. Because remember, you either grow towards Christ-likeness, or you drift away, back to your old, much inferior, totally insufficient religious practices and ways. So one of these do. So let's go into the text for the third and last time. A little bit more explanation this time. I'm not going to go through the text itself, but I'm just going to put it up there so that you can follow with me. I want to use an example to open up a little bit more the start of this passage. It's not necessarily a comfortable example, but let me, let me say this. One of the worst things that I have had to do in my life has to do with Shian. Specifically, with changing his nappies when he was a baby. Horrible. Just terrible. The first time I had to do it, I almost died, and I still think of it as a dark time in our lives, you know. So I still think I, it's, I, I, think I prayed Xi'an into accelerated potty training, and it really worked. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I clearly remember how happy he was when he no longer had to wear nappies, when he became self-sufficient. That was quite a day for him. Now, I know this is a bit of a repulsive example. It's not something you usually talk about in church circles. It's repulsive, and that's on purpose. Because this is what the writer of Hebrews is all about. He says, man, you like, you like babies still wearing nappies. You haven't even made up your minds yet about whether you want to be potty trained or not. Huh? Really, get over it. That's the sense here. That's the sense of exasperation. He's just really, man, this is repulsive, you guys. Get on with it. I want you to experience this. Not just hear it, but experience a bit of this feeling. And this is probably the best kind of example that opens it up. It's as if he says, come on people, you don't want to be like children with whom we need to have the same discussions over and over again about the basics, but you just never seem to learn and to grow into something better. 
You need to get on with it. Make up your minds. Back to where you came from or forward into Christ-likeness and to spiritual maturity, into all that God says you can be by virtue of His promises. That, you, you know, you choose. You've tasted enough of all of this that you can make an informed choice. Now go for it. It's this whole thing with Israel again. Remember, he writes to Jews. It's this whole thing again of Egypt versus the promised land. How often did they say, oh, I just wish if I could have a little bit of that Egypt thing back. God says, man, I'm, this whole promised land is in front of you, but you want to go back to Egypt? What's wrong with you? You're crazy. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Let's go on. goes a little bit on. Um, this is one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the whole of the Bible and in Hebrews. It always comes up around this question, once saved, always saved. Yes or no? Especially verse 6. I mean, it's really vexing and difficult, it says. And then have fallen away. It is impossible to bring them back to repentance. It's really, there's four possibilities here. I'll quickly listen to them. The first one is some, some say this passage teaches the possibility that you can lose your salvation. Yeah, no, no, it's not once saved, always saved. You can lose it. Second possibility says, now this is just a hypothetical possibility. It's not a real scenario because in verse 9 he says, But br brothers and sisters, you know, beloved, of you we know it's not possible. If it was just a hypothetical, if it was not a real possibility, why would he even mention it? You know, so you have to think about that. Don't think that's a strong possibility. The third possibility says that this passage refers to apparent believers who were in the church but who are not truly saved. They've superficially tasted of the gospel, but they haven't really committed. They outwardly appear to embrace the Christian experience, but inwardly they never committed to full surrender. Once again, not a strong possibility because they've tasted of the Holy Spirit that works inside and internally. So it sounds to me like they've really tasted it all and they, you know, maybe they were not committed fully, but I don't think they had a superficial experience. That's not what it sounds like. And then, number four, the loss. Uh, it seems that they must be genuine believers who commit willful sin and fail to press on to maturity. In other words, they make an informed choice away from Christ. After they've come to full understanding or more sufficient understanding of what Christ did and what salvation is and all of this. I think the answer lies somewhere in what I call the position condition secret. I want to open this up a little bit. Now, this, this can lead to humongous amounts of theological debate. This because of the difficulty of this text. There's a point in here somewhere, if somebody chooses against Jesus, where it no longer becomes possible for them to choose for Jesus again. I don't know where that point is. No theologian would ever be able to tell you. Only God knows. There's many other verses in the Bible that's connected in some way, shape, or form to this argument about once saved, always saved, yes or no. And it seems from those verses, it's mostly a case of nothing can take us out of God's hand 
except we can turn our back on and walk away ourselves. It seems that that's mostly the sense. However, look at this. Theologically, the position, condition, secret, that is us. It's a generic stick figure for male and female, of course. From the moment of salvation or rebirth, God looks at me in a different way. From that moment. Because he sees me from that moment onwards through Jesus Christ in whom I now am. We know from many other verses in the Bible, the moment salvation happens, I come into Christ. I, I am in Christ. I'm actually really under his covering. It's a little bit like that. God looks at me and he sees me through Jesus Christ in whom I now am. I am covered by Christ. You see? It's quite easy from that point. Think of glasses. Jesus becomes the new glasses through which God sees us. It's not bad glasses for God to wear, I have to say. I love it. And we call this position. This is our position in Christ. You've heard this phrase many times in the past. So position says Jesus was 100% perfect. His sacrifice on the cross was 100% sufficient and completely paid the debt of our sins once and for all. In other words, when God looks at me through Jesus, He sees me as 100%. This is a groundbreaking thought right there. I often think we don't understand how deep and strong God's grace and love really is. Because this is what happens. Suddenly, after salvation, God sees me as 100%. How the heck is that even possible? That's grace. Thus, when God looks at me through Jesus Christ, He sees me as 100%. However, the reality is we know that that is not the real, that's, a, that's not the full picture. In theology, we call this justification, by the way. Forget the word, but for a moment, there it is. There's something we call our condition that is also applicable to this. And it works like this. When I look at myself, I see that I'm far from 100%. Unless you have a problem with your own, own ego. <laughs> you know, nobody's 100%. I mean, there, there it is. I'm looking at myself and I go, what? There's a question mark here. God sees me as 100%, but I know I'm not. Because I still make mistakes. I wrestle with previous habits. I struggle to grow. All these things are part of my life. Man, it's not that easy. I'm not 100%. We call this condition. It still has to grow and improve towards my, what my position already is. So in Christ, I'm already 100% from God's perspective, but I'm still growing to become that while on this planet Earth. In theology, we call this sanctification. Let's just open it up a little bit. So let me use an example. Ravon is my daughter. From the moment of her birth, she has been my daughter. This will never change. It cannot change by virtue of DNA. Ever. But she can go over to the United States of America, blow up the Empire State's building, land up in jail, and have a terrible condition. Does it change her position? No. By virtue of DNA, she's my child. But if she's turned her back, 
if she's walked away from under the umbrella of my care and protection and where I can live in a relationship with her, she's in jail and she's suffering the consequences of terrible condition. Another way to look at this is we are sick in bed. That's our condition. And the sickness is called sin. And the more sick I am, the less I can enjoy life with God my Father. The less I can be out, of, out there and be a blessing unto myself and others, enjoy life and live life to the full and all these things. And it's as if God says, man, come on, come on, you guys, you need to grow because, uh, you know, the more healthy you are, the more we can enjoy life together. So get out of bed. Let this stuff go that's making you sick. Don't turn back to this atonement sacrifice, animal sacrifice thing. That's not going to heal you. That's not the right kind of antibiotics. No, you only need one thing that's, well, there's one pill, the gospel. <laughs> it's the only thing you really need. It's Jesus. Hope that opens it up a little bit. At what point, yeah, if somebody turns their back on all of this, you know, by virtue of DNA, I truly believe if real salvation happened, if real rebirth happened, I, I think, by that time, somebody has already made their informed choice and they're in Christ and pursuing this. But if somebody turns away, that's where the gray area lies. We don't know exactly at what point aposteo, a cutting away or a falling away happens. We don't know. That's a difficult theological thing. However, consider this. That's condition. Let's finish it off. I think that is about it. The rest we're just going to go through. We've already had a look at all of these passages. Let me finish with these final words. We either drift away or we grow towards Christ-likeness, spiritual maturity, into the fullness of all God's promises, into the fullness of everything God has for us. Or we drift away or back into these old things that are not sufficient, that cannot satisfy, that, that just doesn't cut it. Especially now that we've tasted steak, why would we go back to hamburgers? <laughs> Especially if it's a McDonald's hamburger. And that just <laughs> doesn't make any sense. Our condition should ever more grow to become what our position already is, so that our lives will be a blessing and a benefit to God, us and to others. Amen.